0: Welcome to episode 215 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Tuesday, 21st of May, 2019.
1: The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey, everybody. It's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesman.com. And now, here are the spokesmen.
0: Hi there. I'm Carlton Reed, and today's show is is all about long-distance cycling. I talk first to Pepe Para, who has just returned from a successful Land's End to John O'Groat. And in the second half of the show, I talk with adventurer Mark Beaumont, who famously rode around the world in 80 days. But first, a clarification. Steve Clays of the US has kindly got in touch regarding the conversation about tariffs that US attorney Jim Moss and I had in the last show. Steve said that, and I'm quoting here, some of the trade stuff discussed at the end of the episode was a bit off. He adds, the 25% extra tariff on e-bike imports into the US was imposed last year, rather than being part of the more recently announced tariffs. Also, he continues, the EU has had high tariffs on Chinese bikes for quite a while and recently imposed tariffs on e-bikes. Quite so, Steve, and happy to clarify that, and thanks for your input. Now, back to today's show, and here's long-distance novice Pepe Parra on how he coped on what was a very challenging ride for him and his friends. Uh, Pepe, thanks for joining us today. Now, first of all, how are your legs?
2: Oh the um legs are recovered after a week the knees are still a little bit shot but um but we're slowly slowly getting there it was uh, quite tiring um i couldn't believe how tired i was really for the first three or four days after completing you know such an epic ride um but um but now slowly getting back to to normality
0: so let's just explain what you've been doing then. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's about a thousand miles, Lee jog. So the land it, and roads?
2: Yeah, it's just under a thousand miles because we didn't stick to all the main routes. We did a lot of um, B roads to take it, take everybody off of the very sort of dangerous, um, fast-moving traffic roads. Um, plus, also, um, when we first started out, we we took the train down to. Um, down to penzance and we stayed overnight in penzance and then um our team leaders thought it would be a great idea to um to start from penzance so we started out in penzance and um and did like 12.5 miles to uh, land's end which uh, within the first five minutes we hit the most humongous hill and I can't tell you how much I was sort of blowing out my bum at the time, trying to just get up that first hill. Um so yeah, no, it was it was a bit bit of a shock to the system, really. So shock to the
0: system, because also I mean I read on your that the blog that accompanied uh, the ride that you hadn't done a great deal of training beforehand.
2: Oh, yeah, no. Um, trust me. It was um It was a bit stupid, really, but, you know, in, you know, in this sort of world we live in where everybody's running around like lunatics, you know, with families and kids and work and stuff like that. But I, you know, I've got a pro training bike, um, which I, you know, I've got at home. So I've been doing sort of, you know, as much as I could 50k on that. And I'd only actually really gone out for two rides, one with some friends and we did a, a 40 miler um and i did one when i was in spain i i did from sort of place called Soto grande down to tarifa and up and down some big hills there just for a bit of training and i did i did it on a mountain bike rather than a racing bike just to you know push the legs a little bit so i did very very little training compared to all of the other people a lot of the people that were um that we were riding with were either doing Ironmans or there were triathletes or you know some of my friends that I did it with they were going out and doing 100 mile hacks so um so yeah I really wasn't um as prepared as I should have been really and and how Um, do you cope
0: with that then if people are out there and they're they've they've got more miles in their legs you're going to catch up eventually but it must have taken quite a while
2: well, the first two days, because, you know, from Land's End going up through um, Cornwall, you know, the first two days was always going to be a killer because of the hills. And some of those hills I were just absolutely brutal, um, especially since I hadn't put the training in. And there's there's one thing, training in the gym and training on a, a training cycle to actually getting out on your bike and you know, trying to hit those hills. So the first, I think, well, the first day, I sort of staggered in to um, to a travel lodge and um, put my legs up against the wall and um, to to raise my knees up above my heart just to get the blood flowing back through. Um, I could hardly I could hardly move for about the first hour um second day wasn't quite so bad but I was still really struggling and then after that I just sort of seemed to slip into it so I you know I've always done a certain amount of training running and um and those type of things and snowboarding is one of my key sports and uh, but the problem I've got at 60 is that, um, you know, my knees are a little bit shot, And, I you know, the, the years I've sort of met people and they said, oh, I can't run anymore because my knees are gone and stuff like that. But, um, you know, the interesting thing I always thought, oh, well, that won't be me, but it is me now. Um, so I did struggle a little bit with my knees because I've got no cartilage left in my left knee. So um, Nurofen come in quite handy throughout the trip.
0: So it was a, 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 a drug, a drug fueled ride up the the spine of Great Britain. Then, and-
2: oh, it was uh, it. it- you know, I, I took it for the first few days, um, and I was happy. You know, I managed to get some four hundred milligram ones, so it sort of definitely numbed the pain. Um, but it wasn't too bad through the middle bit. I I seemed to sort of get my wind, and a um, couple of the days I I really smashed it and absolutely loved it. Um, you know, I, I you know, I'm a speed freak, so I love going down the hills and, um, and I'm lucky enough that I managed to get a really nice bike to, to do this trip on. Um, so, you know, you know, and not everybody probably would. Spend the money that I've spent on my kit and my bike and things like that. But I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I haven't prepped in other ways properly for this, so I, I, I probably need to spend a bit of money to help me in, on all the other little bits and pieces, in shorts and things like that. Mon- you money know.
0: prep is also good. So, what did you? What did you get? What What were you riding?
2: Well, I, I bought the um, the new um, S Works uh, rube um a because it's got the shock absorber in the handlebars and it's got the whip thing on the stem post on the saddle um but i have to say what an amazing bike you know it's a proper bike to do this sort of endurance type um cycle on but um but it just handles amazing down the hills and, you know, you can really ride it hard into the bends and it just flicks you out the other side. So, you know, I, you know, some of the rides I absolutely loved and some of them were just, you know, some days I just thought to myself, what, you know what are you doing? You know you're. You know, it. It, it was just, some days. It was just a killer, just getting out of bed and, you know, and getting on back on the bike at seven o'clock in the morning, you know, to hit another eighty or a hundred miles. So, um, but you know, it's one of those things that you you do these things and you think that. Um, you know i'm going to see great scenery across the uk um you know i'm going to have a great experience you know it's great to do something like this at my age um but you know you see a lot of tarmac because you're you know you know towards the middle part of it you just got your head down and you're just trying to get through the miles but you know i can't you know i did see some amazing scenery I did have some really brilliant rides throughout the the trip um but uh and you know and cycle with some really lovely people as well who and, are you
0: cycling uh, I, with uh, pepe who how many people were there and, and who were they
2: um i was i was biking with people that i've met over the years in marlow in the gym that i go to um that i've made really good friends and some of the guys you know two of the guys that we were riding with did it on e-bikes um so they were like our little support group there was there was two groups basically how it sort of merged in our in our in our ride. I think there was um, in our group we had um, there was one sort of lady a little bit older than myself. And it's bad to mention ladies' names, but she was just absolutely awesome. I was you know I was how I'm reasonably fit, but on some of the flat runs, I even I was struggling to keep up with her and she's probably a good few years older than me, um, We they classed us as the s- s- sedate group because I suppose we were the sort of more older group and just sort of we all knew each other. So there was probably two, there was seven or eight of us in our little group. And then there was the elite group, which had you know, between four and six. There was different people that joined at different stages as well along the ride to do a couple of days or three days and, and stuff like that. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things that uh, happened to me, one day I, I decided that, um, you know, the weather was coming in and I thought, oh, I don't really want to get caught in all this rain. I, I needed to do a bit of work en route. So I thought, well, I'll leave at six o'clock in the morning. Um, And I think that this was on the route from um, Kendall. Um, So it was quite, you know, far up. Uh, So I left at six o'clock in the morning, got in front of the group. And this is the only thing that I got on the whole ride. I ended up getting a puncture. So I'm there in the middle of nowhere. And and the tubes that I had um, weren't quite the right length in the valve. And lucky enough, some guy stopped um, on the other side of the road and just said, do you need some help? And you just don't get that these days. And this guy stopped. His name was Phil. I didn't get his second name. But... um, but he tried to get my bike in his car and, you know, but in the end we couldn't fit it in his car. He had a nice Mercedes and I didn't want him to scratch it. So we dropped my bike over the wall, took the front wheel with us and he took me to the nearest bike shop, waited for me to get it sorted and then took me back to my bike. And I just thought, you just don't meet people like that these days. So just, you know, a big shout out to Phil, you know, what a lovely guy. Um,
0: good on fire and good for the local bike thieves they didn't go behind that wall
2: well, I left all the lights on, flashing away um so it was dropped in a field just you know it was probably about a six foot drop so you'd have had to look over to find it but um but yeah no it was it was a bit of a risk but I didn't want um anybody to say that um you know that I, w- I was getting a lift you know the funny thing is the guy did say to me Oh, do you, you know, I can take you twenty miles up the road. To, you know, I thought, no, I better not do anything like that. That just um, would just wouldn't be good. And you know, any other thing, you know, I wanted to um, do the ride for charity as well. So I thought, there's no point in doing this sort of length and putting yourself through this sort of. Uh, I wouldn't say torture, but some days it felt like it. Um, so, I, I, you know, at work we, we support Alzheimer's and stuff like that, and, um, and I like to support some of the children's charities. So I did it for free charities, and, you know, and I've raised over 6,000 pounds. So, you know, so that made me push me on and spurred me on each day when I didn't want to get back on, on the bike. So, you know, all in all, you know, it, it, it's panned out really well
0: that's a good point so cha- charities things is actually can actually spur you on it can it can motivate you to to keep on riding because you're doing it for a charity not just for yourself
2: oh yeah no it it totally motivated me you know there was me and one of my friends and we were looking at each other going oh you know why are we doing this and um because you know some of the days are you know We're not big cyclists, you know, and I hadn't done the training that I should have done for something like this. So, you know, some of the days were terrifically tough, Um, you know, but knowing that I was supporting free charities and, you know, all of, you know, the people at work supported me and, you know, even, you know, just the general guys that I work with in the office, you know, sponsored me and stuff like that. And there'd been some really nice people that had put some money in to sponsor it so I, you know you just i think it definitely spurs you on it definitely makes you feel you know look i'm not just doing this to myself i'm doing it for other people so you know yeah it was it was really really good to to have that behind me
0: mm. so was this a company that was organizing this it's like a an organized thing
2: where they yeah, doing, or sort of hotels and Yeah, it was a company called um, Yellow in Marlow. They're like, um, you know, they set up a spin club and yoga studio and stuff like that. Um, Richard, who runs it, is a really nice guy. Um, You know, and it was his first one. And I think, you know, there was a few things that one would say that um, could have been done a little bit better. But, you know, he tried his best to to make sure that, you know, in, in his world that, you know, everything was done right um we did it mainly through travel lodges and stuff like that and although i you know some of them you know it's a clean place to um to stay but quite often we were getting up and leaving at seven o'clock in the morning with no breakfast so and when you're doing these sort of rides you just got to have the food inside you and we were you know hitting sort of 20 30 miles before we had breakfast. So, you know, you could, even though you're taking protein bars and those type of things and little hits to keep, you know, you know, the engine going, I could definitely feel in the mornings that you, you can actually feel your stomach is running on empty. So, um, you know, by the time we got to some of the places for food, you just, you know, couldn't eat, eat enough. So, um, To be quite honest, I thought I was going to, because I was just eating like a horse throughout the whole trip. Um, I didn't eat as many protein bars and things, you know, I brought back probably at least half of, you know, what I took with me. Um, So I didn't take as many, um, drank a lot of water while I was riding um, and had the little you know things that you put in the water to you know to support your body um but you know apart from that and just eat stopping you know if we if we managed to get breakfast in the morning we would have breakfast then we'd have a mid-morning stop then we'd have a lunch stop and then we would have a sort of late afternoon stop and then um you know, and obviously then hit the hotel. But I think some of, you know, if I was doing it again, I'd either stay in better quality hotels or I would stay in bed and breakfasts because we stayed in one bed and breakfast and, you know, they can't do enough to help you. You know, they get up, they make you breakfast, sort you out, um, you know, and, and I think that's probably a better way to go than staying in these sort of travel lodges. Um, yeah. or
0: this is really really important it's oh. important any day, but on a on a big day and you're doing a lot of big days how long did it actually take you to to do the trip
2: um we did it in nine and a half days um one of the things that we did right towards the end my little group um we all you know we sort of all got together and we thought um where we after fort william we were going from fort William to Tain, Which would have been roughly just over about 104 miles, um, something along those lines. Um, You know, and we thought, well, you know, just in case we struggle on the last day, because we're still hitting some big hills up through Scotland, um, you know, that we would, you know, book another hotel and we would do at least another 18 miles on um, so that it gave us less to do on the last day. Um, and that's what we did. So we did a hu- So the day before the last day, we did 110 miles. Um, I think on the Friday. Then we did 126 miles on the Saturday, which only left 70 odd miles to do on the Sunday to finish. So, so it was a really nice thing, and I think everybody appreciated that, even though the 126 miles was absolutely a killer. Um, to do because um, it just seemed to go on and on and we started at seven and we didn't get in to the hotel till nine thirty at night and um, so that was a pretty long day even though we had a few breaks but um, it was a big push I think the biggest problem for me for the last three days was where my knee was starting to play up even more um, and obviously you get uh pains in your bum um i you know it was um i was starting to get numbing in my hands as well because i couldn't get out of the seat for the last three days so you're putting more pressure on your palms of your hand on the handlebars to relieve the pain in your bum and the pain in your knee so um so i had a combination of three things going on um right towards the very end um you know, and I think I think it was right on the um, on the 126 mile one. We passed some bike shop, and I just stopped, and I had to. I ran in, grabbed a gel seat, and put a gel seat on my bike just to try and uh, alleviate the pain in my bum. Um, but um, but I think a few people had the same issues as I did. You know, with you know just the numbing in your bum from being sat on those hard saddles for seven or eight hours a day um mm-hmm. it, yeah it's a killer
0: but you were on the, the right kind of bike so let's go back to that because you've got the specialized roubaix which yeah. is which is designed i mean i'm not being rude here but it's kind of designed for older guys doing longer rides so yeah. that's the whole theory behind it i mean they they show that it's got a race pedigree but that's not really who it's for it is for people doing longer rides who are slightly older it's not a race bike at all no. um, it's absolutely the perfect bike for you to, to to be riding who advised you to get that bike because it's absolutely the right idea
2: well i i've got a um a bianchi which i've had for about uh, eight or nine years and i and i actually put a new set of wheels on it um you know uh, carbon fiber wheels and you know had it all serviced ready to do this and then i started to do a bit of research online um and you know and then this came up as a bike and i just thought that sounds perfect. Wow. Um, super lightweight, um, super quick, um, and I just thought, you know, that you know sounds like the right thing to do. And um, so I, I, you know, I went to the shop in Kingston, and you know, and and uh, you know had a look at you know what they were doing, um, you know, and then I decided to buy it, and um, they fitted it to me, which made it, you know, obviously. Um, a lot easier to do this sort of length of ride um Mm. you know and and it's just it is a very quick bike because even following all the guys down the hill he you know i was constantly on my brakes because even though we were all freewheeling down some of the big hills um you know i'm having to brake all the time behind them because my bike's so quick so quite often i'd pull out and whiz around because you know, when you get down the bottom of the hill, if you're gonna go down one, you know you're gonna go back up one. So um so you want to really hit it hard to get up as far as you can the next hill, um you know, to take the you know the pedaling out of um having to hit the next one so hard. So um that's where I just found that you're just an awesome bike um to, to use.
0: Mm. And a com- I mean, I know you were saying you had a sore bum and stuff there, but it's a comfort bike. So it's a long distance comfort bike with you know those added features you're talking about like the the stem and stuff to to soften the blow um but clearly you're doing so many miles each day in the you have the most comfy bike in the world you're still gonna um be painful in some tender areas oh yeah you haven't done that long because especially with you because you haven't done that training
2: yeah, and I definitely didn't get um, get my bum into action in you know getting it conditioned to do those sort of hours in the saddle. Um, you know, I think for possibly the first four days, I, I didn't really feel it, um, and I thought, oh, I'm not going to really suffer with the achy bum and the you know having to keep. Popping out of the saddle to relieve your bum and things like that, but I think after about the fourth or fifth day, that was it. That's when it all really started to kick in. Um, so, as a bike to go out and do a fifty-mile or a hundred-mile hack in a day, amazing, you know. So I know it's going to be a good bike for me, you know, moving on in the future, um, you know, to go out with friends and do sort of. Like a Sunday or a Saturday hack you know and doing a fifty or an eighty mile a hack you know it's it it's going to be brilliant for that type of thing um, mm-hmm. so you know de- you know I would highly recommend it but it is it is ridiculously expensive for you know for for a for a road bike, but I suppose you get what you pay for it everything is completely carbon fiber and it's just you can pick it up in one finger
0: so, mm. Mm. Well, for the kind of distance you've done, I mean, per mile, it's it's probably not a great deal of money.
2: No, and I think if you know, and it is one of those bikes that you know that you'll keep and you you know you are going to have probably for the rest of my life. So, you know, and as long as I can keep training and riding and doing the things that I love, then you know, it's a great you know it's a great purchase and a great asset, really.
0: Hmm. Pepe, if you get more into cycling, that's going to be you know. The, that's gonna be just the, your first one of your bikes. You're gonna have the Bianchi. You're gonna have the Special. And then you're gonna think, well, I could do with a bike that does this. And then all of a sudden, you've got 15 bikes. I oh, know.
2: That, that, that's,
0: that's where you could go.
2: Yeah, I, I love though. I'm. I'm. I've always been an off-roader. I, you mm-hmm. know, I am. You know, I've got free mountain bikes. I, I. I just. You know, that's my. You know, that's where my heart is. Is on. You know, cutting across country, popping off of you know things on my bike and and you know just doing little jumps and doing trails and stuff like that i love all that sort of stuff but you know this is a completely different experience doing you know um you know on road stuff um but great training and great fitness you know, I've definitely come out of it with, um, although I said earlier, I thought I was going to put on so much weight. Um, but I didn't, I, you know, I didn't, once I, I lost a huge amount of weight, but I lost probably four or five pounds mm-hmm. over that nine to 10 days. Um, mm-hmm. So definitely slimmed down my waist and my, and my upper body and, and, you know, and obviously my, eyes and um, and my calves have expanded slightly um, but um, but it's all good you know um, I you know I'm, I definitely think that you know when sh- once you reach your sort of 40s and 50s and then early 60s that uh, you know you just got to keep pushing yourself um, it's so easy just to go well I'll have a packet of crisps or a chocolate bar or a beer or a glass of wine or sit in front of the TV Um You know, and I've never wanted to be that person. So um, I love my sports, and I think this was just another thing that um, encouraged me to push myself and do something that I wouldn't normally do
0: have you been back on the bike much since you've been back
2: i haven't been back on my road bike but i've done a spin class so um and i'm and i'm hoping to get to the gym today and do a little cycle and a few weights i need to build my upper body back because you lose a lot of um muscle mass off of your upper body so I can I, – I've noticed, like with the T-shirts that i put on, that they all feel quite loose on the upper body. So I, I need wow. to – and as we know, you know, when you hit my age, you you know, you have to keep the condition, the muscles, otherwise you, you just lose it and then yeah. it becomes much more difficult to, you know, to get it back. So um, I'm not a gym bunny, but I just, you know, um, having – you know kids and grandchildren and things like that you know i just really want to be able to run around and do things with them all so i think it's important to you know keep a level of fitness
0: mm-hmm. and you mentioned before that uh, you're doing this with with work colleagues as well so what exactly what is what is two heads what is what is the the thing that you do
2: um Two Heads is, um, um, we're a brand communication and experiential agency. So, you know, it's everything creative around communicating large corporate brands. So, you know, we work globally um, and we work with companies like Rolls Royce, um, Airbus, Bombardier, BBC. Sony, Disney, so it's all very high-end blue chip clients and uh, we look after all their show programs globally, you know, and that will cover digital content to exhibitions, to events, to experiential um, marketing. Um, so, it, you know, it's a really interesting field, you travel a lot and um, you know, and it's it's another thing. You know, it's an industry that you have to be very dedicated and very committed to, um, because it's a service-led business, and you know, and you know, we're at our beck and call for, for with our clients, and so you have to. It's one of those things, like you do in sport, you have to enjoy it to do it, because um, you give up so much of your personal time and life to actually be in it. So, you know, and it's a, it's a great, you know, it, you know, it's been going for, you know, I started it over 36 years ago. Um, so it's been around a long time and, um, and we, you know, got some amazing people that work in the business and that have been with me for a long time. You know, some of the guys that, um, you know, started out with me are all retired now. Um, some of them have been with me up to 27 years. So, Um, You know, there's, you know, a really nice culture in the business. Um, And, you know, I'm extremely lucky that I've got such great people and such um, a good senior management team, you know, that look after the business and look after the clients. It allows me to go out and do some of these things like, you know, getting on a bike for 10 days. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it does make, you know, it does, does make you feel, you know, a bit humble sometimes. Um, the interesting thing is some of the things that those guys do now in the business I don't think I could actually do um, because it's moved on so far in the sort of social and digital and content and strategy it's a very um, interesting world we live in
0: and does that world ever involve bicycles
2: Um, No, I think this is the first one that we've, you know, that we've done. Um, And I think what we're trying to, you know, I want to try and kickstart, you know, a more, um, you know, there are a few guys in the company that do Tough Mudders and do uh, triathletes and and stuff like that. So um, we're trying to encourage more sport activity in the business so um, and do things like that to encourage people to um, to embrace it, because I think, you know, healthy body, healthy mind, um, you know, and I just think it makes people more motivated.
0: Thanks to Pepe there. I've added links to his Le Jog blog and his fundraising page uh, to the show notes at the spokesman.com, which is the spokesman.com. And now here's David to take us into the break.
1: Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And hi, everybody, it's David. And I am here, well, you know why I'm here. I'm here to talk about our longtime loyal and fantastic sponsor, Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Remember, that's jensonus usacom Now, what's Jensen USA? Well, if you don't know by now, you should. Jensenusa.com is the place where you're going to find all of the things that you need for your complete cycling lifestyle. Complete bikes, mountain bikes, road bikes, gravel grinders, everything in between. Components, apparel, accessory, tools, shoes, really gifts. Everything you can imagine that you would need for your cycling lifestyle. And we're not talking about off-branded stuff. We are talking about name brands that you know, love, and need. For your cycling lifestyle, you're going to find those name brands at incredible low prices, and that's all going to be coupled with unparalleled customer service. If you haven't been to Jensen USA before, I urge you to do it right now and every time you need something for cycling because they're going to have it at great prices, and you're going to be very, very satisfied with their customer service. Go ahead and check them out. That's at JensenUSA.com/slash the Spokesman. Our thanks to Jensen USA for supporting the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. And our thanks to you for supporting our sponsor, Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, back to you. Thanks, David. And now for 40 minutes or so in the company of Mark
0: Beaumont. I managed to get time with this round the world adventurer before the gateshead part of his sellout speaking tour. The conversation was recorded as we sat on a the theatre stage, and there are a couple of loud pops as doors opened and closed while the set-up crew did their final checks. I'm sure you don't have a business card? If you did have a business card, what would it say? What's your job? What do you make money from?
3: People know me as a bike rider and an adventurer, but, but really I've made my life out of speaking, out of communicating. And, and, uh, I think the reality, if people understood the scale of the, the business, the brand, if you like, behind what I do, I think it would sort of spoil the, the romance of it. So being completely candid, you know, the, if you were to ask my father, I'm the guy that never got a job. Um, the reality is the scale of the projects that I lead are, are the complexity and the cost is, is, is more than what most people imagine. And uh, the, um, the thing I really enjoy, that I get a real buzz from, is 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 the project, the idea, the fundraising, the building, the teams, the seeing it through, the creating a broadcast out of it. You know, be that television, the tour, the, the 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 books. Everything I've done since I was a 22-year-old graduate feels like a startup. You know, you 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 see it from that acorn of an idea through to through to the final, and I th- and I love that. You know, I've never seen myself narrowly as a as an athlete. You know. If I'm being honest about it, you know, I'm six foot three and 90 kilos. I'm quite clearly not the world's best bike rider. The, the the reason I've broken all these records with my teams is because I think that we've got a quite original approach and I've built a business around it.
0: So would it be almost a cliche to say that the peddling part of what you do for a living is almost the easiest part? Because that's just, you're just focused on pedaling. Oh, it's all the pre-planning that you've done months before that, where you know the exact route through Mongolia, that kind of stuff, is the hard stuff.
3: The hard bit, like any, like any enterprise, is getting your ideas to the start line. People approach me every single week with their ambitions to climb mountains, row oceans, cycle the planet. I never doubt people's core competence to do the task. I do always question how realistic they are about how hard it is to get these things to the start line so um you know we do not live in a meritocracy you know you don't get to the top of your game just by being good at what you do in a very narrow sense of the world word i'm um i'm a strong bike rider my resilience to injury is probably better than my power to weight ratio it's not about being the fastest the most explosive the most you know i think any race under 500 miles i would not win but when it comes into the thousands tens of thousands uh, i come into my own because the psychology, the uh, the ability not to injure, but also the process that I've got to actually get these projects to the start line is by far the hardest bit. And I'd say if I was if I was speaking about that to a lot of people, I think their wish is that I just fall out of bed and do these things. It just looks like pure escapism, you know. That's the armchair adventure view on what I do, which you know I I don't work. Too hard to dispel. I mean, if I was if I was posting on Twitter every single day the reality of what my life looked like, I think that would um, spoil it for some people. Um, I get invitations from people all the time saying, "Would you just come and j- join me on a bike ride?" As if I spend my life just whimsically riding my bike. I love riding my bike, like any other bike rider. But to your point, when I get to do that, uh, it is a simple pleasure. It is. It is. I am very lucky to make a career out of something I enjoy, I love, I get a huge amount of um, fulfilment from but it's bloody difficult you know and I think that's the side as soon as you have a public profile people assume that's the same thing as wealth and so uh, there's sort of an assumption which I get all the time from people that because you know I'm on the BBC and because I've published four books and because I you know can sell out talk tours that you know you must either have come from wealth or now be wealthy And I think if people look to the hard reality of what it takes to to build a career like this, I mean, I'm looking for no sympathy at all. I love what I do. But um, the reality of the business behind it is uh, not what people imagined. So you didn't come from wealth, is what you're saying? No, very much not. So tell me about your childhood. Where did you come from? I grew up on a farm, uh, a wee farm in the foothills of the Highlands. Um, My mother and father, well mother in particular, I had quite an alternative view on education. Myself and my two sisters, Heather and Hannah, were homeschooled until... Younger? Older? One of each. Mm -hmm. So I'm bang in the middle. And um, similar ages, though, a year and a half older, two years younger. So we were homeschooled until secondary school. So, you know, by the time I did go to high school, it was still much closer to go to Glen Shee Skiing than it was to go to um, high school. And my mum always felt the great outdoors and... A sense of self and um, you know seeing ideas through and having grit was probably as important as you know academics so you know I probably spent an hour or two a day around the kitchen table until the age of 12 um, and then you know a bit of a bump into high school as you might imagine but by the time I was 12 and going to high school I already had the idea and the confidence to go on journeys and adventures so I mean I was 12 when I pedalled across Scotland a few years later you know I did my first thousand mile ride, my first solo ride from John O'Groats to Land's End. So you can sort of see that or sort of organic confidence more than anything else. You know, but I went to a school which was obsessed about rugby and football and I could never throw or kick a ball because if you don't do any of those things until you're 12, if you're not in a normal um, sort of social environment, it's a very difficult thing to catch up on. So, you know, I was that kid that went skiing, rode ponies and rode his bicycle, um, very much outside of the curriculum. and. Um, so the childhood for me, it was a Swallows and Amazons existence, it was a complete freedom. I've got two daughters of my own, so it's only really when you've got your own kids you consider your own childhood. I mean, I never thought mine was odd at all until I now live in the middle of Edinburgh and they, you know, go 300 metres to a playground every day. So, um, I loved what I had, but what I had was, was, was the ultimate freedom. Uh, which meant high school was a bumpy ride for obvious reasons, um, but, um, you know, by the time I finished high school I did well but I was only there uh, through, um, through a scholarship and, um, you know, I, I, I got straight A's as a, as, as, a, as a kid, went to university and I was, you know, economics and politics degree was meant to live a life of finance and, you know, accountancy and that was it. But because I'd sort of had this parallel existence, because I'd spent my first 12 years on the farm, and because I'd spent the next 10 years um, doing bigger and bigger amateur expeditions, never with a view that this would could be a career, but simply because I wanted to go on one big trip before I took on all those serious things in life, like a mortgage and and a, and a, and a graduate placement scheme, I um, I thought I'll just go on a big trip to end all trips. So this was not meant to be what it's become, it was just a and I thought, well, if I've only got one chance, let's pedal around the planet. Hence, the first cycle around the world, two thousand twenty seventeen or uh, two thousand seven, and um, it was very simple beginnings. I mean, that first expedition cost me twenty five thousand pounds. Took me six months to raise that money, and um, you know, I went from pooling pints in a bar in Glasgow to setting out to to pedal eighteen thousand miles, never with a view before. I really committed to it, that I could break a record, because I'd never been a club rider, I'd never raced, I'd never been coached, but I simply thought, let's research the guys and the girls, not many girls had gone for the record at that point, mainly guys, that's of course changed, who had um, gone for the circumnavigation? because I thought they'd be the, have the best routes, the best research, the best, um, so I thought I'll learn from them and I'll go off on my own far more nomadic journey. And. Um, and then I spotted that the record stood at 276 days. So I always think that my first around the world cycle was more of a feat of enterprise than it was a feat of athleticism. It was simply hadn't been done properly. I looked at it and I thought, why is that not been done? Why is the record for pedaling 18,000 miles so damn slow? Uh, I mean, 276 is, is you know, completely pedestrian. So you know, considering the record is now sub 80. Um, So I I spotted that and I thought, well hang on a second, if you ride a century a day, you'll get around the world in 180 days. Let's allow a day, a a fortnight for contingency and that gives you 195 days. So I set out with that plan and I came home in 194 days, 17 hours. So I I, I broke my target by eight hours. But the man who cycled the world, that first big BBC documentary series was First of all, commissioned as a half hour program, so it was meant to be something far smaller. There was no contract, I was not paid for it. You know, it was just, gave me a camera and said good luck. If you manage to chat to that camera and capture the story, we'll see what we can do with this sort of thing. And it's one thing breaking a record like this um, and doing what I said I was gonna do, which was take the record from 276 down to 194. But because I'd managed to chat to camera and capture the the essence of that story, the I would have got, you know, flash in the pan, two, three days in the papers and then I would have gone back to getting my accountancy graduate job if I hadn't filmed it. And it was when the BBC documentary came out. You can imagine, I was 23 years old, the only job I'd ever had was, you know, pulling pints in the bar and then suddenly, you know, you're prime time on the BBC and you're offered book deals, talk tours, you know you know brands are phoning you up to do adverts and whatnot and I suddenly as a 23 year old thought hang on a second by by building a brand by by really sharing what I did because I was an economics graduate I um, didn't get into television because I wanted to be in television we didn't have a television growing up so it really wasn't part of my my makeup at all I got into it for the simple utilitarian sum that I needed to give earned media value to my sponsors I needed to raise 25 grand, how do I thank them? And I spent six months telling sponsors that I was going to get on telly and I spent the same six months telling television companies that I had the whole thing financed and just hoped that you know, everything would fall into place. But what happened, of course, is as, as soon as I came back and realised what that profile had allowed, I had the opportunity to go and do more. And um, you know, what? what freedom. I mean, that doesn't really tell the truth of what the last 15 years has been like because you know, really hard miles to get things funded, really hard miles to get media brands on board to, to tell the story. But, um, but what a buzz as well. You know, every year waking up and going, what projects? How do, you, how do you build the whole package, recruit the team? You know, I've loved every part of that.
0: So you, the going around fast, even though you're not a pro yeah. cyclist level, but going around the world fast is one way of going around the world. Yeah. And of course, another way of going around the world is to take 20 years to do it. Yeah. so is the going fast kind of like your day job and then do you hanker after oh, i really like to just go around norfolk yeah, and, yeah. and take three weeks to go around norfolk because that would be relaxing for you do, do, do can you can can you put those two things into into compartments or do you always have to go fast
3: i've never i've never gone particularly slowly um the most nomadic expedition I've done was the Americas so from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego which was nine months so that was you know trying to be the first person to climb Denali and Aconcagua within a single season and ride the length of the Rockies and the Andes so I was only going 70 miles a day on that trip but I think compared to a lot of tours that's still pushing it for nine months Um, I've always thought that I'd be a really rubbish nomadic traveler because I'm not a This is making an assumption about, you know, I've got great buddies who are proper nomadic travellers like Al Humphreys and Rob Lilwell and the guys who can genuinely go out there for years. I've always thought I couldn't do that. But then again, I've always sort of thought that because I'm not a very introverted person. It's not like I crave that space. I can do it because I've done a huge amount of it. But it's not like I... I sort of go on journeys because I'm running away from anything. I mean, I, there's a lot of people in the adventure world who have had a job, have had a career, and then bend it all and gone, do you know what, I'm off to the wild. And for some of them, this is a necessary evil. You know, I've got to come back and make it pay. Whereas from day one, because the television, the books, everything else that I do has been part and parcel, I've, I've loved it. I've, I've always enjoyed that. So, I've not, so in answer to your question... I've never really properly explored slow travel to know if I'd be any good at it. My life's always been too busy to just take six months out and see which way the wind blows, you know, get to a T-junction and decide whether I turn left or right. I've never done it. I've always assumed, I've always liked the balance between pushing myself hard as an athlete, the physical and the psychological, what's my personal best, what am I capable of, and the slideshow view of the world you know the fact that it, I've never been inspired by racing somebody on my shoulder by you know just doing laps of something I know and it purely making it about the physical and the tactics I've, I've loved that I've loved that balance between pushing myself but also the places it takes me you know mm-hmm. I've been to 130 countries in the last 13 14 years and as much as I've traveled and as much as I enjoy the planning phase the excitement is the is the unknown it is you know the friendship of strangers the, the you know the changing that sort of tapestry of cultures and people and places and that's a that's the tantalizing part of adventure travel which then married with the uh, urgency of being on a timeline of trying to race i've I've loved that you know it's the, i mean the, my first time around the world the americas africa the story is really about everything that happens off the bike. You know, the places you, it, it, the bike takes you. It's only really with the extremes of the 80 days that it becomes purely about performance, very little about the world around you. Do you prefer going on what you do
0: with a support crew or with just you and pannier bags? So that, that first one around the world was just you and pannier bags. Yeah. The second one was obviously with a support crew who are helping yeah. you out and carrying your I stuff. Mean, and so which do you prefer, or, or do they completely separate and you can't
3: say you prefer one to the other? I can't say, and it's interesting because both of those times around the world is exactly the same record, and yet by experience they could not be more different. People like keep asking me which was a better trip. The first cycle, the, the Man of Cycle of the World, was a much better adventure, let's be honest. You know, there was a lot more layers to it. There was a hell of a lot more unknown. You know, it was properly wild, man. It was, you know, sleeping in mosques in the middle of Iran, sleeping in police stations in Pakistan, 3,000 miles on my own into headwind and in the outback. You know, it was it was a proper journey of discovery for me as a 22, 23-year-old. I know a lot more now, so it's harder to be impressed, harder to be surprised. I wish I did have that wide-eyed naivety, but I don't. And um, what we've just done with the 80 days was purely about performance, you know. But, so as an athlete, what we've just done with the 80 days makes the first time look like kindergarten. I mean, if you're not a bike rider, it's impossible to compute what 240 miles a day every single day for two and a half months is like. I mean, that's a, that's a long way to drive. But, you know, when every day goes from 4 a.m. until half past nine, 10 o'clock at the night, you're five hours in your scratcher, it's brutal. But when you look back and every conversation, every purpose, every everything is about making that bike go faster. That is absolutely glorious. That is, I mean, I've never found anything else in life that has that sense of flow and that sense of obsession. It is wonderful. Um, and that's because you're supported. Yeah.
0: You don't have to supported. think about where you're going to sleep tuk- that night. You don't have to think about yeah. your food. You can just concentrate on
3: yeah. ahead. I took myself to an extreme on the 80 days, which you could not do unsupported. Nobody could so I mean I think it would be entirely impossible to pull that off without an amazing performance and logistics crew to that detail so i I think the simplest way to answer your very simple question is which would I prefer to do again and of course I would choose to go on my own or with a buddy and you know explore more off the bike of course I would as an athlete I'm glad I've had the opportunity in my career to put all my cards on the table and figure out truly, what is my absolute best? What is that personal best? There's something really glorious about having had the opportunity to do that. Very selfish ambition. You know, what am I made of? What's the absolute darkest place I can go to and what am I made of? But if I could choose, I'd go somewhere in the middle. I wouldn't go back to, you know, five bag touring and like, I mean, crikey, that America's trip, I carried a laptop and a, mo- a satellite dish. I mean. You know, to think of the the weight and that what I would do now is you know something like Africa. You know, bike packing, go ultra light, go go on something where you have really got that range. You can explore a huge territory each day, and you've got the bare the bare essentials, the bare minimum. That's what I love. That's and I would go I'd go gravel. You know, I'd go on a I'd go on a setup where you don't have to stick to the ribbon of tar. You know, so I'd love to do some big routes in the future where. You've still got the freedom of the range of a, of a road setup, but you're going ultra light, and you can um, have a fine balance between, you know, staying with people or living wild, and you know, that's, that's probably what I enjoy most. And I've done quite a lot of trips recently, you know, re, you know like around the North Coast 500 and whatnot, which, which are just that. And I think that's the best possible balance between pushing yourself as an athlete, but, but ultimately still self-sufficient.
0: Well, that's what my son is about to do, very soon. So he's going to China, and he's cycling back to the UK from oh, wonderful. China, in, including. It probably isn't going to be the route that you took through Mongolia. It's probably Kazakhstan he's going to go. Yeah, but it's very much a gravel bike setup, not much carried, yeah. and then just pretty much throw himself on the. You should talk to Ed, you
3: talk to Ed, my tour manager, because he's ridden that route. Hmm. So uh, yeah, Ed Ed recently became the first person to ride a unicycle around the world. <laughs> Fantastic. Have you heard of Ed Pratt? He's definitely worth chatting to.
0: Well, Josh, we can, I also taught my kids to unicycle, so there's, yeah. there's even more there to... Uh, talk about kids, actually, would you go cycle touring with, with your kids? Would you introduce them to that world? Would you be happy for them to go yeah. off by themselves? And Are you teaching them what you were taught?
3: No, uh, simply because I can't. You know, I had such a, I had such a wild upbringing, you know, my kids will never know how to make their own shoes out of rabbit skins. You know, I was, my, my main textbook as a primary school kid was the SAS survival guide. I mean, I had a proper wilderness uh, upbringing. Um, so I live in the middle of Edinburgh next to the Botanic Gardens. So that's as wild as it gets for them, I'm afraid. But um, I do try and take them on as many adventures as possible. Harriet, who's my five-year-old, has been to, you know, 25 countries with me. She's got a, 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 a great interest in the world already. And um, all, all I can ever say in that situation is by the time they're old enough to have those independent thoughts, I hope they've done enough adventures with me to know. And I, I mean, when people approach me, what I'm always questioning is their sense of self and their sense of awareness for what they're taking on. So, you can be a very good bike rider, but to to really travel or to climb mountains or to row oceans or to go through the Arctic, you know, you have to have pushed your comfort zone, you need to know how you'll deal with stress, you need to know how you'll be self-sufficient in a tight corner, you know, just simple stuff, which, where people's behaviours change under pressure. So, I hope I, in the next 15 years with my daughters, can go on enough adventures with them that they want to go on, I won't drag them along, but that um by the time they so yeah what always worries me is when somebody says you know some knee-jerk reaction to a big expedition i've never done anything before and i'm off to climb everest Mm, i really would advise not doing that um you know know what it's like genuinely to take yourself into the hills first you know so i'm all for shoot for the stars but i'm also a huge fan of do your apprenticeship learn your trade and there's nothing in the adventure world which is easily found you know the more you put in the more you get out and so with my kids you know I say I certainly won't be a pushy dad they're only five and two but we spend enough time in the wilderness and enough time traveling that I hope they've got enough sense of self that they won't end up in a situation that they can't deal with and I don't need to worry too much about them once they start taking themselves there. That's
0: kind of where I approached
3: yeah. parenthood, yeah.
0: so I was a cycle tourist, I spent two years traveling the world, and when I came back I wanted kids, not mini-me's, but I wanted them to introduce them to yeah. stuff that I'd done, almost to think, well one day maybe they'd want to do this kind of stuff as well, and, but more to teach them about the world rather than actually go and do bicycle rides in hairy places, just yeah. to give you the experience and the confidence to do your own stuff. So. Two girls are doing their own thing, nothing to do with bikes. But then Josh is going out and he is doing these these, these hairy trips. So it, when my wife gets worried and says, "Oh, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're sending our son out to the wilderness," like, well, I can't actually say you shouldn't be doing that, son, because like no. he's been brought up from an early age yeah. to do that kind of thing, and he's clearly wanting to do it. Yeah, and and
3: he's and he's independent, and it's interesting because I don't think I. I don't think I give people the, 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 the skill sets to do anything. I think, you know, you'll hear it tonight. People often come, the, thing, the most common thing that people feedback to me is that following the adventures has given them the confidence to do something they already wanted to do. It doesn't have to be cycling, it could no, just be something, be something else, totally else in their life. Totally different, mm. absolutely totally different. And you know, I think that's what storytelling often does you know, the hardest thing in life is just committing to the things you, you know you can do and you want to do. And, and I think for a lot of people, if you were to listen into to the conversations people have with me tonight, you know, the, the first thing they'll say to me every time is, you know, the books they've read, the, 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 how they've followed and how they've enjoyed the trips, some, sort, some form of a compliment, thank you very much. The second thing they'll say is the biggest ride they've done, the thing they want to do, and it's th- th- I always think people follow, people care, with one eye in the mirror because you know it gives them a perspective on their own ambitions and what they want to do and if all I ever do with my own kids and with anyone who cares to listen to what I talk about uh, is give them a bit of quiet confidence to do the things they already think they can do fantastic so we were talking before we came into this space where you're giving the talk
0: about how the corporate audience yeah. is going to be de facto different to this audience, because they, they know absolutely who you are, they've probably read your books already, um, they've probably followed you, mm. they probably used that tracker on your website to see where you are in the world, etc. So those are two very, very different audiences, yeah. but you think they're, they're roughly getting similar things out of it, in that it gets them to open their horizons, to do their ideas, that you're inspiring them to do something
3: that's mm. extra special to themselves. Um, I think a, a public audience, an audience who's bought a ticket, who already knows me, or has been dragged along by <laughs> quite often by a loved one, um, for them, it, you know, the things I'll talk about are relatively anecdotal. You know, it'll just be, it'll just be, um, if they take anything away, it's a want to travel, it's a want to take on some of their own ambitions, it's very much a... if I'm speaking to a business audience, if I'm asked to simply talk about you know some anecdotes, some Fireside Chats on adventure, then great, that might get them to... But the thing I'm more often asked to speak about, which is not of that much interest to a public audience, is actually how I've broken so many records so consistently by such margins. So... The mechanics of it. Yeah, I've never pipped a record. I've always created a leap in performance or a failed. And so I've got, a very, I've got a blueprint, a plan, a process, you know, I'm never trying to break other people's records and and the methodology around how we've done this fairly consistently over the years. So often I'm after, you know, talk about that or run workshops where, you know, I don't even talk about cycling around the world. I literally sort of work with the business on the challenges they've got around how they get the behaviours and the inputs right to stack up to whatever they're trying to do. It, it's, it's the nuts and bolts of planning, it's really not rocket science, but you'd be amazed how few Businesses um, understand what makes the biggest difference, (laughs) and uh, so after doing sort of an introduction to who I am and what I do to an audience who don't know me at all, a corporate audience, typically what they're asking me to do is actually help them. You know, if, if if all a business is wanting is a celebration and talk about the steady state of the business, I'm I'm not really your guy. You know, I'm typically brought in as a bit of a strategist to help them really sort of move things up a few gears, and I've worked with all sorts of businesses, you know, recruitment, energy sector, all, all sorts, um, private equity, to, um, to, to completely shave, change the culture within the business. And that's what I enjoy doing. So I think if I was to talk about that with our audience tonight, you know, they'd go, oh, but I spend half my life in a suit, half my life in Lycra, and I enjoy both. I genuinely do. I mean, for, 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 for your audience and for everyone coming tonight, you know, they'll just think I'm a guy who rides my bike.
0: Mhm mhm Talk about your sponsors
3: um, i've had quite loyal sponsors over the years, so i'm quite careful with sponsors and by that I mean um, there's a big opportunity cost you know if you if you If you work closely with our, our sponsor our brand, then you know it precludes lots of other opportunities for the business so it 's got to be right and it 's got to be right for your brand and your values as well so the most important thing with anyone and any business is reputation, and so I'm pretty careful to work with businesses I, I'm happy to be aligned with. I've turned down lots over the years. If you if you look at my website, if you look at everything I do, it's pretty clean for for sponsors. A lot of people who back me um, are very long-term relationships. Like Koga, I've worked with them for twelve years. LDC, I've worked with them for over a decade. Artemis, you know, again, well over a decade. VanGo, these guys. um, I actually first met them as a student. You know, VanGo is a rehash of Govan, Glasgow. Yeah, Scottish. Yeah. Mm. And so I was a Glasgow student. Mm. I um, I I got I got to know them actually through one of their product designers when I was when I was at Glasgow University, and I've I've used their kit since I was a teenager. So 15 years I've known the VanGo team. Uh, Obviously, the the Round the World in 80 Days was fully supported, so we weren't using tents. But again, um, I wouldn't just Use a sponsor because they were paying the bills. There's got to be a, a level of credibility there. So I mean, the VanGo guys, being you know a Glasgow graduate and having known these guys since I was sort of seventeen, eighteen, I've seen the evolution of the business and uh, got to know the team quite well. And uh, they're bringing out some really cool stuff. I don't know if you've seen, I don't know if it's a launch yet, the new hydrogen stuff, but like the the world's lightest tent. And obviously, I'm quite keen to trial that um, on the tour. I do a lot of cross training. People assume that um, you know a bike rider just rides his bike, but actually, for conditioning, for not for not injuring, uh, cross training is massively important for me. So I do a lot of fell running, um, you know, circuits, that sort of thing, which is where these guys got involved. On you know, the one of the, one of the fastest growing top end shoe brands, and um, and I think so. Two seconds. We're just recording something. And so I, th- I think, um, again, a lot of cyclists will sort of think, well, you know, why are you working with a running brand? Well, that's because to be the all-round athlete who takes on some of the world's biggest ultra-endurance events, um, you've, you've got to think broader than just, you know, cycling. The Altura guys, who aren't based that far from here, actually. Oh yeah, North uh, Yorkshire. Yeah, North Yorkshire. Um, LDC, who I mentioned before, a private equity firm who moved back backed me for 12, 13 years, they actually... Um, invested in Zara Fisher a number of years ago and they made the introduction to Altura and um, Altura have been very open to doing product development so uh, if you look at their range they've they've changed a tonne, I mean if you were to ask me honestly 10 years ago it's not a brand I would have thought was appropriate for ultra endurance and what I do but they are top end, I mean <laughs> my last race was 1200 hours in the saddle, you've got to have kit, especially your Beb shorts and the contact points with the bike—that's absolutely fit for purpose. So I've done a lot of product development with them. They're really, really open to to, to new designs and the, the some of the some of the waterproofing they've brought in and some of the the endurance range and the, the race um, shorts. Um, you know, I've I've fed into. So I think uh, in the four years I've been working with them, um, the brands come a long way, and they're 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 great. The, the other the other sponsor involved in the the 80 Days tour here is leadership challenges, and those guys were the um, logistics team that organised the 80 Days. So again, I worked with them. I mean, they—they they basically the blueprint that I was talking about before and how we actually came up with a plan for how to do this. They were the guys that implemented it. But their bread and butter is doing teams for Race Across America, uh, for RAM. So um, for the for the four sponsors that are involved in this uh, UK-wide talk tour, um, I've got a history with all of them, which is great.
0: Mm so if mcdonald's came along if shell came along if another it. one of these corporates who you know have you be greenwashing for them what, what what what's your pat answer to to them
3: um well i've turned down uh, some big brand sponsorship if it didn't feel right because you know you can get a check but then if with that you sell a part of your credibility then um it's not worth it uh, and it's interesting because when you're in the public eye you know, you get put in a box and people make, people make very sweeping assumptions with you. So it doesn't matter what you do, you will get criticised. You know, I, like anyone who's in the public eye, gets, um, you know, gets, uh, gets, gets enough. And, and, and one of the criticisms I've had over the years from an absolute minority is, um, is that sense that what I do, I do professionally. I think there's a sense with some people in the adventure world that it should be kept un, unmade. It's Olympics. Yeah. Like the old school gentleman should be doing <coughs> this, and yeah. So, and, and, and you should mm. just fall out of bed and be doing these things. Mm. So the fact that I've quite happily, you know, had big flight sponsors over the years from, you know, private equity houses and you know, banks and insurance companies, um, I make no apologies for it at all. I've always said this is my profession, profession. This is my job. You know, that uh, you know, I'm not a student running this out of my bedroom, and. Um, you know, the criticism which I've had is, as I say, let's, let's keep this in perspective. I take myself as seriously as, you know, Andy Murray or Lewis Hamilton. This is my job and I'm trying to be the absolute best I can be. And I'll do that with the right businesses who I'm happy to work with. Um, so, so I don't think those guys, because it's more, um, it's seen as more professional, you know, traditional sport. But the adventure world, you know, I think there's a, a minority of people who, would, you know, a lot of people have said in the last year, well, you've kind of spoiled it for the rest of us by smashing the 80 days by such a margin. You know, it's now beyond the realms of the amateur. Yeah, and that's called progress. You know, I mean, I've done every version of that. I've done it on my own with a cook stove. I've done it in the middle, you know, traveling ultralight unsupported. And I've now gone with a full support team. But I've always felt that the round the world should be as coveted and as professional as the around the world sailing record. You know, it's, it's the ultimate. It's the world. So, you know, I, I, um, I understand that people have an opinion on it. There's no wrong way to ride your bike. Just ride your bike. You know, get out there. And in terms of, you know, being a part of that generation who have really pushed the envelope in terms of what's possible in ultra-endurance, you know, I'm incredibly proud. You know, there's, there's so many guys and girls who are, in the last decade, who have taken things to another level, and it's great to be a part of that. Do you have, for want of a better word,
0: a cycle of... One year talks, doing stuff like this, in suits, if you like. One year riding Lycra. Do you have, can you see that pattern in the past? Can you see that going forward? Or is it a bit more haphazard
3: than that? In general terms, yes. It's easier to see it looking back than looking forwards. You know, my life isn't quite as clean as that. It's not quite, you know, there's a five year plan and this is exactly how we're executing on it. My career so far has been a fine balance between things I planned to do and were very much, you know, and opportunities that have come my way. Or things that have gone wrong and I've taken a complete change in direction. So, um, you know, when I capsized in the Atlantic and and nearly didn't come home, that was meant to be the start of a much bigger cycling and rowing project, um, which I'll chat about this evening. Uh, And then when when that didn't happen, I took two years out and just became a TV presenter, thinking, well, the future for me is just being a broadcaster. Um, so in the last you know, decade and a half, there has been a cycle of you know, fundraise, go and do the expedition, make the programme, write the book, do a tour. This is my fourth UK tour. Um, looking to the future, I think once you have a public profile, you sort of live in the box that you've created for yourself. So I think the public and um, television would quite happily if I just kept riding my bike and writing books and kept doing what I was doing. To be honest with you, after the 80 days um, that was my Everest. You know, what's bigger? You know, it's, it's, I'll continue to push myself as an athlete but as much as I enjoy sharing the stories fundamentally you've got to be doing it for yourself. You know, there's got to be that selfish streak to it because if I was out there pushing myself on these major, major expeditions, suffering to that degree purely to pay the bills. I mean, let's face it, th- there's easier ways to pay the mortgage. <laughs> so um, you've got to fundamentally be doing it because you're passionate about doing it. You've got that absolute fire in the belly. So I think the next 10, 15 years for me will look very different to the last 10, 15 years. I'm quite happy to keep evolving who I am and what I'm doing. And if I was just sort of fueling some public profile, I think that would I think that would become quite unfulfilling.
0: And as part of that, because you're oh. now oh. obviously four, Years ago, five years ago, you became a father. But is it now different that you're a parent? Do you think yeah. your adventuring will be different? It's like, well, I can't go around the world now because I've got girls to look after.
3: Um, I think, yeah, I mean, my risk, this, uh, some of the high-altitude mountaineering and the ocean rowing that I did 10 years ago, I wouldn't do now. Just because of that exposure, you know, when things, when the unlikely happens, you tend not to come home. So it's nothing about, you know, how... It's just about that, the, the degree of the consequence. And cycling your bike, stuff likely to go wrong, but it's less likely to be life, death, than some of the ocean rowing and a high altitude mountaineering. Um, so yeah, some of the challenges I've taken on have definitely evolved. Uh, my appetite for risk has definitely changed. But it's not like I wouldn't travel. I still spend half my life on the road. And that's something which my family support and accept. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not doing the six, nine month projects that I was 10 years ago. But it's not like I wouldn't take on a big project because I've got a family, because they're very much a part of what I do. Um, I think it's more the personal want rather than the the family dynamic. Uh, I don't have that same itch to scratch. You know, I'm still pushing as an athlete, taking myself in different directions. But, you know, I was joking about it before we came in here. If I had a pound for every time somebody says, what are you going to do next? You know, you'll see me week in, week out, taking on interesting... Filming projects, pushing interesting records. I mean, the last one was trying to break the, the hour record on the penny farthing, and, and uh, I've been out racing mountain bikes and um, doing things which, you know, definitely fulfill my interests and sort of I can continue to push myself. Will it forever and a day be my main job? You know, will I be a Serrano fines? I don't think so. You know, will I be trying to climb Everest when I'm 70? I, I don't think that's me. I mean, I've had a very fulfilling uh, athletic career for for the first 15 years of my career i mean i don't i don't i'm lucky enough now because i've built the business i don't need to sort of say oh i'm retiring and i need to go back to a graduate placement scheme i can evolve because if you look at what i do now it's a fine balance between my athletic career my broadcasting career my corporate career and it's just putting the the focus in a slightly different place and i've now got a small team around me that very much support me with that so if I could continue to take on interesting broadcasting projects each year, take on, you know, things which as an athlete took me in a different direction.
0: So like a Michael Palin <laughs> type thing? Travelogue type thing where you're lo- not adventuring on, on your I own?
3: Do, yeah, I'd love to do some more television. Of course I would. Uh, and, I, and I have been doing more television. You know, I've been doing doing stuff with CNN recently and also these guys with uh, GCN um, in talks with BBC at the moment. I really enjoy the television side of stuff. Um it's 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 a, it's a real buzz. Um but I th- I think I do need to get my fix. You know, I do need to take myself into the hurt locker and do something painful and interesting every so often. So um yeah, I don't feel the need to. So I and I also I said before that I don't I wouldn't particularly be interested in doing like sort of domestic racing. But some of the world's biggest and most iconic endurance races i would love to pit myself against a field and just figure out because for these scale of races you're still pretty much racing yourself so things like race across america the cape epic you know having never done it having never really entered any events in my life always created my own events because
0: they you'd be competing against other people you've done events that you haven't
3: really competed Correct. against anybody on the road but i think there's would
0: be people ahead of you potentially
3: but i think my skill set would adapt pretty well to them you know, um, the shortest record I've got at the moment is the Cairo to Cape Town, 6,000 miles. So I think Ram, for example, would be brutal, um, but it's 3,000 miles. So your average roadie would get quite intimidated by stepping up to 3,000. 3,000 miles does not intimidate me in the slightest, but the sleep deprivation and the intensity of that over 9, 10 days would be another level up. So I think it would be really interesting to take my life's experience. You know, I am I don't think there's many people who have as much... Experience at sleep deprivation, you know, riding ultra endurance back to back to back like that. So if I take everything that I've done and package it all in a, a nine day race coast to coast, I'd love to know how I fared in that. Uh, and I'll and I'll do those things. Of course I will. But um, <coughs> it's all in the all in the correct order. There's no way in my career I could have done that before the world or before the other things. C- creating these big events has given me the freedom of time to be able to take on some of these events because otherwise I think it would be very difficult in five years time to do what we've just done around the world in eighty days you know that takes, that's the culmination of everything I've done since I was a 12 year old kid in terms of experience and actually being at the right place in your life physically and mentally it's a huge amount of suffering Um, so yeah, to now in the next five years to continue to push myself, but to take on some of these iconic challenges and some other records. You know, I'm, I'm going I'm to keep busy, but I don't feel the need to, um, you know, go out and cycle around the world again. It's not, uh, not going to do anyone any, any good, even though that's what people think I'll do. You know, it's, I've done it twice.
0: Thanks to Mark Bowman there, and thanks also to Pepe Parra from earlier in the show. We normally only do two shows a month, so consider this third one as a bit of a bonus. The next show will be recorded early in June and sent to you from Stockholm in Sweden. The show after that will be for the Virtual Velo City podcast and will be for backers only. So, there will be no spokesman shows from Dublin, but there's still plenty of time to back the Kickstarter, which will enable myself and Laura Laker to do our stuff at the world premiere cycling advocacy conference, links for that crowdfunder and for the topics mentioned earlier in the show can be found on thespokesman.com, the-spokesman.com. Check them out. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.